Rarecast listeners, coming together to help each other is what the rare disease community does best. As the COVID-19 outbreak continues to spread around the world, you'll have questions. Global Genes has created a resource page with information to help. Please visit www.globalgenes.org to see the resource list. And if you have links to add, please send them to advocacy at globalgenes.org. Stay safe and remember, we're all in this together. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Pharmaceuticals is developing a platform for targeting the regulatory genome with therapies to address diseases at a fundamental level. At the end of last year, the company entered into a collaboration with Global Blood Therapeutics to develop new therapies for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. Under the collaboration, Cirrus is using its platform to discover drugs that turn on the production of fetal hemoglobin as a way to treat these rare hereditary blood disorders. The production of fetal hemoglobin is usually shut down soon after birth. We spoke to David Roth, chief medical officer of Cirrus Pharmaceuticals, about the collaboration, how Cirrus approach works, and why activating fetal hemoglobin is viewed as a promising approach to treating these rare genetic blood diseases. David, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to talk about sickle cell disease, Cirrus Pharmaceuticals, and its efforts to use its gene-regulating technology to address the condition. Let's start with sickle cell disease, though. I'm sure most listeners have heard of the condition, but they may not have a good understanding of, of what it is. So what is sickle cell disease? How does it manifest itself, and how does it progress? Sure. Well, I just wanted to start off by thanking you for giving me this opportunity to uh, discuss sickle cell disease with you. Um, You may know uh, I'm a hematologist by training, and I've cared for patients with sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. And, uh, you know, I look at this as what I expect to be a really fun discussion. So so thanks, uh, just to start off. And, uh, you know, let me just also say that, you know, at Seros, we're we're working to redefine the power of small molecules to control the expression of genes. Uh, and we, we can do this with the aim of making a profound difference for patients with a variety of diseases that are really difficult to treat, um, including sickle cell. So, you know, to get at your question, sickle cell disease is an inherited blood disorder with abnormal development of red blood cells. It's caused by a mutation in the beta globin gene. And, you know, that's really uh, an important gene because uh, beta-globin is involved in making adult hemoglobin, and that's the protein that carries oxygen in our red blood cells. And the abnormal sickle gene is different from normal adult hemoglobin uh, because it can cause red blood cells to take on this really unusual shape. So they sort of look like, uh, let's say, like a crescent moon or a sickle instead of a normal red blood cell, which is typically round and you know, it looks a lot more like a donut. 
And I guess these misshapen cells can cause very severe symptoms from anemia and also uh, because the sickle cells can clump and block blood flow in the blood vessels. Uh, and that can cause a really common symptom, which is severe pain uh, associated with reduced blood flow and oxygen delivery to multiple different uh, organs in the body. Now, you had also asked about how the, the disease manifests itself and how it progresses. So I guess in that respect, uh, I just want to point out a couple of things. Um, and it's somewhat of an interesting story, but we've really learned a whole lot about the genetics of, of what we call the hemoglobin genes. And this really explains a lot of interesting and, and what now turns out to be a lot of useful things about the timing of how this disease manifests itself, in particular in early childhood. So, so let me try to explain this. Um, in the developing fetus, the predominant hemoglobin is called fetal hemoglobin. And over several months following birth, the fetal hemoglobin gene is turned off and the adult hemoglobin gene is turned on. So starting out with fetal hemoglobin turns out to be really critical because fetal hemoglobin binds oxygen very strongly. Uh, and that's in comparison to adult hemoglobin. And since a developing fetus in the mother's womb can't breathe to get its oxygen, fetal hemoglobin is the trick. Uh, and it uses its very tight oxygen binding abilities uh, to capture oxygen uh, from the maternal blood and transfer it to its own. But, you know, after birth, when babies can start breathing through their lungs, there's a switch from fetal hemoglobin to adult hemoglobin. And adult hemoglobin, which has a much more relaxed, so to speak, oxygen-binding capacity, can then absorb the oxygen from the air that we breathe. And, you know, while all this physiology makes a lot of good sense, unfortunately, it's, it's when that switch occurs and when it's complete that young children can start to manifest the symptoms of their abnormal adult hemoglobin gene that has that sickle mutation. Um, so, so these symptoms, they can vary really very widely. They, they often uh, include what we call sickle cell crises. Uh, and these are painful episodes that, that often uh, can occur suddenly. Uh, and they're, again, due to blockages of blood flow um, you know, through the vessels because of these clumped sickle cells. And they, they can involve the chest or the abdomen. Uh, episodes can be very brief, but they can also last very long, you know, as long as weeks or even longer. Um, you know, they can even be life-threatening affecting the brain, uh, which can cause a stroke, um, or other organs like the lungs or the kidney, spleen, eyes, or joints. Um, one of the real serious complications, we call, uh, it, it, we call it chest syndrome, the acute chest syndrome, and that's, that can be really serious because patients can't breathe properly uh, because their pulmonary vessels are blocked. Um, I think all patients, almost all patients, uh, suffer uh, permanent spleen damage from you know, blockages in the spleen, and that usually occurs in early childhood. And the problem there is that it, it can increase those patients' risks for infections. And, you know, the same goes on with uh, progression of kidney disease and, you know, debilitating joint disease. So, you know, it's a really challenging disease, um, and these patients have really serious problems. What's the prognosis for a patient with the condition today? Well, you know, for, for decades, the mainstay of treatment for sickle disease has consisted of penicillin prophylaxis to prevent those life-threatening infections I mentioned earlier from the spleen problems. Um, we also use blood transfusions to treat acute complications and to prevent strokes in some patients. 
Um, and a lot of the patients end up requiring narcotics uh, to manage excruciating pain due to these uh, blood vessels and the vaso-occlusive episodes. And hydrea, um, really one of the only drugs uh, approved in sickle until just recently, has been shown to reduce those like vaso-occlusive events. But even that doesn't completely eliminate them. And so I guess while penicillin has been effective, you know, very, very effective uh, in preventing infections uh, and the transfusions can reduce strokes and patients at risk and, and, and so on, these complications are, are still not completely prevented. They're often debilitating and they can lead to all, all those organ damages. So, so, you know, the prognosis can be pretty grim. What I will say is that you know, prior to penicillin prophylaxis, many, many sickle cell patients died before the age of two. I mean, that's like an amazing statistic. And, and few lived past their 20s. But, uh, you know, things have improved considerably, and now most patients with sickle disease are living into their 40s and 50s, although now they're manifesting these complications of end organ damage. So, um, you know, all said, I think it's very clear uh, there's a, still a long way to go to improve their quality of life and to develop meaningful drugs that can make a major impact. For a long time, there wasn't a lot of activity around sickle cell disease, but in recent years, there's been a flurry of activity. We've seen new drug approvals and an expanding pipeline. Why is that? You know, it's a really appropriate question, in, in, in particular for sickle cell, because this was the first disease that was described at the molecular level, I believe, back in 1949. And progress in those early years was indeed very slow. Um, since sickle cell disease uh, predominantly affects minority populations in the United States, especially African Americans, socioeconomic factors uh, may have contributed to this. But, you know, as we look back, uh, it is fortunate that the government funded research in the late 1970s. And that really helped to fully characterize the natural history of sickle cell disease. Subsequent to that, you know, that kind of study led to large randomized trials that supported some very important steps in preventing infections in children, strokes in patients at risk, and decreasing the frequency of those painful, you know, VOD uh, events, as I mentioned earlier. So there's been progress. Uh, you know, these early advances, while critically important, were modest, I'd say, at best relative to what we know is happening today. Uh, you know, science has really caught up and has helped to fuel uh, what I think is a fastly growing drug discovery and development activity in the area. There have been two recently approved drugs uh, that can be very helpful. Uh, one decreases the stickiness of these sickle cells and it helps with those vaso-occlusive disease events. Uh, the other involves um, uh, it sort of it prevents that sickle hemoglobin from from elongating. We call it polymerizing, and that has been has been associated with uh, improvements of the anemia itself. Uh, and you may be aware that there's investigational gene therapy and gene editing approaches that are emerging, as well as our own approach for controlling gene expression with oral medicines. And all of these are reaching a point where they can potentially address the root cause of the disease. So, you know, I like to believe there's a lot more hope and promise now. Ciros, as a, a platform, you, you touched on that you're developing therapies that modulate the activity of genes. You do this by targeting what's known as the regulatory portion of the genome. What is the regulatory portion of the genome? 
So most of drug discovery and development has focused on the approximately 2% of the genome that encodes for proteins. And we know that the other 98%, which doesn't code for proteins, is responsible for regulating the expression of genes, determining the type and the function of every cell in the body. And so I guess until recently, the regulatory genome was, uh, how shall I say, like a black box for researchers because we just didn't have the tools to study it. We, we didn't know how to approach understanding what these regulatory regions were, rendering them largely unexploited for drug discovery and development. But our platform now gives us this unique ability to elucidate the regulatory genome. And, and by that, I mean it, it enables us to interrogate it and to clarify exactly how it works by, by shedding light on the underlying biology of disease and by identifying new targets, we, we aim to develop drugs that can control the right gene at the right time in the right patients. Why might this be a, a more preferable way of approaching a disease than trying to target the underlying gene itself? Yeah, that's a good, a good question. So, so targeting disease-causing genes and those proteins that, they, that are encoded by them you know, has been clearly very effective in treating certain diseases, but you know, not all diseases are amenable to that approach. Many diseases, for instance, are caused by abnormal expression of otherwise normal genes. And for example, you know, we, we believe that a wide range of, of diseases um, that have eluded effective treatment to date could be addressed by controlling the expression of both normal and abnormal genes. So for the case of sickle cell, we can turn on the expression of the normal fetal hemoglobin gene, and that has great potential to treat sickle cell, but it also has the potential to treat beta thalassemia, which is another disease caused by beta globin gene mutations, but those are distinct from, from the sickle cell mutation. So, so this approach may have multiple opportunities to, to be utilized. And what is your drug actually doing? How is it targeting this regulatory portion? Well, let's, okay, so, so we always start with the patient, um, either by analyzing their tissue samples, um, as we've done in work ongoing in cancer, or by looking at real-world patient clinical and genetic data, as we've done in the case of sickle cell disease. And... When we start with patient tissue samples, we analyze and compare the regions of the regulatory genome in those samples of healthy cells, and we can, we can compare them to disease cells to identify what those disease-causing abnormalities are. So, so that sort of enables us to, to precisely pinpoint which genes we want to control to provide a, a therapeutic benefit. Now, in the case of sickle cell, going back to your question, um, we used patient data, and that enabled us to focus our attention on increasing the expression of fetal hemoglobin. You know, you go back to my prior story about how that's expressed at first and then it switches uh, to, to adult globin. So, so we applied our platform to look at changes in the regulatory regions of the genome as the red cell matures from the fetal to the adult state. And that enabled us to find um, the best points uh, to intervene to develop oral drug candidates. In some cases, we can directly target this regulatory machinery and develop a drug that binds very specifically to a transcription factor, for instance, while in others, we can indirectly target the regulatory machinery by inhibiting an enzyme that's important for the function of the regulatory machinery. So we have multiple different approaches to, um, to tackle the modulation of the regulatory machinery, and, and we use our platform 
to hone in on, on where to approach our, our drug discovery efforts. You've entered into an agreement with Global Blood Therapeutics to use your gene control platform to discover, develop, and commercialize therapies for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. How does the agreement work? How, how closely are you working together? And is there some point where you hand off a drug? Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, I just want to say uh, we're working very closely together and we're very excited about this collaboration. So GBT is an established leader in sickle cell disease and they've got a proven development, manufacturing, commercial capabilities, track record. So their investment in us allows us to expand our program. We can explore multiple approaches in parallel for turning on the fetal hemoglobin gene. And ultimately, you know, we believe this maximizes our chances for success. And certainly it speeds the development of these much needed therapies for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. Now, I didn't know if you were asking some specifics about how the deal actually works under the terms of the agreement. Uh, if you were interested, GBT provides Cirrus with uh, about $20 million in an upfront payment uh, and they're going to fund an additional $40 million in preclinical research over three years uh, should they exercise their option to take one of the Cirrus drug candidates forward into development. Uh, Cirrus could receive up to a, another $315 million in various milestone payments for each product, as well as royalties on product sales. And really important to Cirrus is that we have an option to co-promote our first product from this collaboration in the United States. And that is important to us because it ultimately supports our vision uh, to become a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company. And is there a decision point at which time they have to make a call on whether to license a drug? Yeah, so when we develop the drug uh, of, a, of a drug candidate, uh, they have a decision to take that candidate forward into development or not. Is there any clarity on what level of fetal hemoglobin you would need to achieve to have a, a viable therapeutic? Yeah, um, there is. So let's just say we, we took our, our cues from real-world clinical data and genetic data from patients. And this ultimately told us which gene to target and what level of fetal hemoglobin we believe we need to provide a functional cure for the disease. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the fetal hemoglobin gene is, is typically um, uh, turned off after birth and, and the adult hemoglobin turns on. Uh, you know, now it's, what's really interesting is that there are some people for whom the fetal hemoglobin gene, it remains on into adulthood. And, and this is a condition known as, and we like to use tongue twisters in medicine, hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin. Uh, interestingly, when, when this condition is co-inherited with sickle cell disease, it, it, it ameliorates the symptoms of sickle disease. And, and we know that people are asymptomatic when their fetal hemoglobin levels um, are approximately 30% of total hemoglobin. So, so that gives us a target uh, to focus on. And our strategy is, is really essentially to mimic the condition of hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin in the context of sickle. So we're going to aim to increase the expression of fetal hemoglobin in sickle cell and in beta thal patients with an oral medicine, and, and these are each you know, done with the aim of providing a functional cure for the disease. Is the expectation that this would be a, a standalone therapy, or might it be used in combination with other therapies? Oh, yeah. So, so we believe an oral medicine that activates fetal hemoglobin expression would address the root cause of the disease by working far upstream before any symptoms or complications would develop. 
Um, now, you know there's also gene therapy and gene editing approaches that are currently being investigated to induce fetal hemoglobin, and you know, these are obviously also very exciting, and, and, but, but these approaches can involve some cumbersome, uh, even risky procedures to permanently alter a patient's DNA. Uh, and also, you know, these investigational therapies for sickle are, are likely just going to be available as centers of excellence that require patients to probably take off periods of time from work. And, and so one can anticipate they may only be appropriate for some, but not all patients. Uh, and in that context, you know, we view an oral medicine approach as simple, more convenient, uh, and, you know, a preferred alternative with the greatest potential to make a big impact. Um, getting back to your original question, an oral medicine could likely be used either as a standalone first, you know, first line therapy. Um, it could be used in combination, um, or even as a booster if one of the other treatments are only partially effective. And what's the path forward? Where are you in development right now? So our program is in the discovery uh, stage, drug discovery stage. Uh, we've identified multiple promising targets. This past December at the American Society of Hematology meeting, it's also called the ASH meeting, we reported uh, on one of these targets, um, a novel fetal, he fetal hemoglobin repressor called NFIX. Uh, in that report, we validated its role as an important repressor of fetal hemoglobin expression in preclinical studies using gene knockdown experiments, and we also showed elevated levels of fetal hemoglobin when we knocked down the gene, uh, and they exceeded 30%, which is that threshold I spoke about associated with a functional cure in patients. So, you know, obviously we're excited about the new target, but we're also evaluating other promising drug targets that may increase fetal hemoglobin expression. One of them is, is called LRF, and there are also other members of what's called the NERD, N-U-R-D, complex. Um, and so all of that is part of this collaboration that we have with GPT. Any guess when you might be in a position to file uh, an IND? Well, I think, you know, the drug is still in the uh, discovery stage, so I think it's a little premature to speculate on that at this point in time. But we're making great progress. David Roth, Chief Medical Officer of Cirrus Pharmaceuticals. David, thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.